0: Okay, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about Torah. Uh, you, you, you can see that in the Torah there's like this overall story. There's this overall story about how Bnei Yisrael don't quite manage it, even though they get every opportunity in the world. They don't quite manage to be as they should be. So first there's Yitziat B'zray. It's yet the triumph, I mean, it, it couldn't have been a better deal. I mean, everything is miraculous. All the enemies get smitten. Uh, all the uh, all the people kind of see obviously the hand of God leading them out of Egypt. And yet, uh, when they get to um, when they get to Yamsuf, when they get to y- to Yamsuk, before the splitting of the sea, they're kind of at a loss. They don't know what to do they've uh, so somehow somehow i think that what that means what that means is that uh you know there was i, I think we spoke about in the past there was this territorial imperative about gods about gods that you might where you know that they had territory that they divided up in the world they divided the world into territory and just because some god was powerful in the cities of Egypt. Doesn't mean that that god is going to be powerful out in the wilderness at the at Suf, at the Reed Sea, or, or whatever, whatever, you might call it, the Red Sea, the reeds. I mean, everything, everything is new. You know, everything had to be learned over again. There was no, they did not have the capacity to just have faith in the promise that was given to Avram Avinu. God said to Avatma, don't worry, it'll be all right. And he specifically mentioned two things, right? One is the number of progeny, right? Zerah, that'll be, you'll become a great nation. And the other is that you'll inherit, Eretz Yisrael. And so the struggle of B'nai Yisrael is to say, reality doesn't mean anything. What means something is the promise. That's the only thing that means anything. And that was a difficult, that was a difficult thing for Bnei Israel to achieve. So in Yitzayat tribe, they don't quite achieve it. They complain. And Moshe Rabbeinu has to assure them that it'll work out all right. Even though the miraculous nature of Yitzayat tribe is obvious to everybody. But as the Rambam says, and as we pointed out, the Rambam says miracles don't prove anything because anybody can do a miracle, well maybe not anybody, but people who are into doing miracles can do miracles, and the other people, other people can't. So so miracles, according to the Rambam, don't prove faith. You can't have, you can't create faith based on a miracle because someone else will come along and do another miracle and that would be the end of that. So, that's the position of the Rabbah, But then we, 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 we uh, I am attracted to that a p- position based on the stories that are told in the Torah. So, first is Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Of course, after Yitzhak Mitzrayim, there is, <coughs> there is um, uh, Matan Torah, right. uh, Matan Torah, the Egel and the golden calf. Now, what is the golden calf? Like, why did they decide to make a golden calf? Or why does the story tell us about a golden calf, right? I mean, because, according to Chazal, B'nai Yisrael only heard the first two of the 10 Commandments at, at what we call Tarsinai, the theophany, I mean, however you want to, whatever word you want to use but there was an experiential quality to Matan Torah, which included a limited amount of information. And that limited amount of information was Anochi Hashem and lo yelecha Elohim achirim alpodach. So what did the Jews do? Said, this is the only thing they knew. The only Torah, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, um, I'm sort of like taking advantage of you. It was Rashi said that they knew the Torah from the beginning of the Torah until Matan Torah. And there was, but, but at Har Sinai, all they learned that was that God, the one God in the world, doesn't want them to be idolatrous. So what did they do? They became idolatrous just about that one point which they had learned in Har Sinai. So what did they prove? What did Nay Israel prove? That, that words are not enough that it, it was, let's say, let's say, they were not acting rebelliously against God. But what they did was, they reinterpreted what they heard. Many have shown them say this. <coughs> they reinterpreted what they heard in a way which enabled them to do what they did. Right? Which means, like in, in our lingo, you know, like the tradition of interpretation, uh, lingo, it's not enough to have the words. But you have to have the tradition of the words. Anybody who deals with words knows that they can be variously interpreted. But anybody who deals with human action or reaction knows that it has a variety of interpretations. I mean, you, you just don't know. I mean, you don't know with finality. You can offer a suggestion you could have a theory those of you who've heard of psychology may have heard that there are different theories of psychology about what's really happening inside of the person but still we always go back to shakespeare like it doesn't matter what the theories are shakespeare wins because he wrote up his theory in a nice way in a way that's appealing so whatever the theory is you know like he wins Although I'm sure that if somebody else had a theory that was provable, maybe Shakespeare would be out of business. Well, who knows? That's just I just said that. So, B'nai Yisrael, Cheta Egel, is a rejection of the word. It's a rejection of the way of the word of God. How did they reject the word of God? They had an interpretation. It's similar to the way adam harishon in gan eden rejected the divine command not to eat somehow the snake convinced chava and chava convinced adam harishon you know how these things are telephone you know one person tells another second said the third and then by the end you know no one knows what they're saying at all so (coughs) adam harishon was convinced adam harishon was convinced to eat what he should not have eaten because he was able to, mi- to reinterpret the word. He was, a- re- he was able to reinterpret the word of God, right? The the that they brought, even though Moshe Rabbeinu came down and they were eun stone, right? Which means something to us like a sort of permanent, but we see that it wasn't permanent because there was no Torah Shaval Peh. If you don't have the Torah Shaval Peh, you never know what it means. I mean, you don't really know what it means. And one person says one thing, one person said another thing. Which is interestingly, interesting, the problem that, uh, that religious Jews might find with Bible courses in the university. Like, because what are Bible course what are they based on? They're based on new interpretations, new ideas, things that people, the teachers who teach the courses, thought of on their own. that's very nice. But they're usually not based on the tradition of interpretation which we think, or we, I don't mean we, I mean, you know, the, the religious leadership thinks that it's the tradition of interpretation that tells you what the text says, and that there's nothing else. Anything else is have care. You know, they can say whatever they want. I mean, if you just deal with words, if you're just going to deal with the words, so the words are very pliable, like they don't... They, you don't fix. They're not fixed in any in any place. Then finally, so that was that was a revolt against God, the Word of God. Which, uh, of course, the Avot, Abraham, Yisov, and Yaakov, and <coughs> the Avot, the Avot were uh, committed. The Avot were committed to the Word of God, right? The, the Avot were so it was a second revolt. So the first revolt took place in Tziat right which didn't kind of make it at first. Maybe at the end it did. But I mean, Moshe Avdoh. I mean, it's all you have to think about it. The second revolt was against the, the the written word which they received at Har Sinai. The third revolt was against Eretz Yisrael. The third revolt is against Eretz Yisrael, and that we call that the Meraglim. But of course, you can look upon the story of the Meraglim in a different ways. first, why did they send them? Obviously, if they sent them, they wanted to... They, they, they thought they, they, that there would be some advantage to send Now, there could be an in, in Listening to Moshe Rabbeinu and going and con- conquering the, the land could not have been that advantage. But what's, uh, they could do that without sending Miraglim. The only reason to send Meraglim is to find out something that Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't telling them, something that they didn't know, something that would, uh, uh, that would make the whole project uh, uh... less agreeable disagreeable right so that's that's what happened that's what happened with the miraglim so and miraglim, uh, miraglim uh, we have this uh... you know with the miraglim we, we have this problem of democracy there were like twelve of them ten said one thing and two said the other thing so that's the first thing we ever learned that democracy is uh, also idolatry because we knew that the two guys were right. But if you counted them, it always came out ten against two. Who sent the spies? Moshe Rabbeinu. Was his revolt then? No, no, he was not revolting. Well, the question is, who instigated who sent them? Moshe sent them. Who instigated good. it? So it could be that B'nai Israel instigated it. It could be that Moshe Rabbeinu thought that B'nai Israel needed to be... Uh, uh, perked up and and, and uh, have a more solid kind of attitude about things. But I don't know. We don't know. You have to look at the before you deal with. Uh, try to deal with that. Well, I'm, what I'm saying is that democracy was put to the test. It is always a problem that the Jews have. There's always a problem that Jews have. It's a problem that even in modernity. I mean, uh, the Jews Jews have it. It's the one thing that I. The one thing that I think, you know, that I'm sympathetic to Netanyahu about, that he has to suffer democracy, you know. So, so he has all these fools around him. Who he has to count them before he does anything. He has to count up how many fools are on which side. So, <coughs> so we, we, uh, we saw, right, that, that's what we learned from the Miraglin that democracy is a big problem. Obviously, democracy has certain advantages, but the main advantage that democracy has is that the leadership is exchanged every couple of years. That's very good. That's a very good idea. Uh, you could save seats. You could have like a, you could call a number, like early in the morning and say so so that's the miraglin the story of the miraglin is after all a denial of the promise that god made to Avram and then to yitzhak and then to yakov and then moshe rabbeinu repeated to b'nei yisrael and said we're going to Ganon as per the promise right so but so so all the essential theological positions are abrogated Yitziat Mitzrayim, Matan Torah, and the Meraglim. And the Meraglim. Uh, after, 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 uh, uh, the Egel, after the Matzah Egel, God said that the time had come to destroy B'nai Yisrael, which is a pretty radical position. Like if you assume, if you assume that God does not change God's mind, right, that, that's not one of the one of the ways to think about God then that it actually happened because everybody died during the 38 years in the desert I mean everybody died so this was the colossal punishment except for the two spies right? except for the two spies who did him die and the women well, the people who were not guilty did not die but everybody who was guilty everybody who was guilty died so This was a a remarkable thing. And Moshe Rabbeinu, more remarkably, argues for the salvation of this enterprise. But God said, I'll make you the head of a new nation. And Moshe Rabbeinu said, no. This is the enterprise that I am in charge of. You put me in charge of this enterprise. like It's as though somebody says, you put me in charge of this company. If you bankrupt the company, then you're denying your own... You're putting me in charge I mean like what you, put, you you put me in charge of nothing, so that can't be so so Moshe made him this very curious argument to save B'nai Israel and he said, what what is everybody going to say in the world? everybody going to say that God couldn't pull it off? are those going to say God is God, and that God does what God wills? And if you, if you want them to continue, they continue. He wants them to, to, to disappear, they'll disappear. No, that's not what good they're going to say. They can say well, God wants them to, to continue, but He couldn't, so they all died. They all died in the desert. This was this is kind of you know I guess a lawyer would, would, uh, would agree that this is a kind of a pretty weak argument. You know, it's like the last possible argument that you could make. There was nothing good that Moshe Rabbeinu had to say about his charges about B'nei Israel. And even though even though the Torah says right, God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, I forgave them as you said. But as you said, as you said means that they're not forgiven. You know, it doesn't mean even though we say it in Yom Kippur at yeah. night, you know, we like those kind of sukim, but it doesn't mean that God said, I forgive them for what they did. It's rather that God said, I forgive them as you demanded. You, Moshe Rabbeinu, what did Moshe Rabbeinu say? If you kill them out, that all the nations of the world will say that God doesn't have power. It's, it's a defense of the place of God in the world, which is another theme in the, book of, of the, the books of the Torah. <coughs> like, what is God's role in the larger scheme of things? While we're talking about B'nai Israel. Yitzhak Mitzrayim, Matim Torah, Eretz Yisrael Well, what about all the other people in the world? What is God's role? And So Moshe Rabbeinu said it's going to get messed up. God's role will get messed up in the rest of the world. So God says Salach de Gidvarecha Salach means as you said. Not that they deserve it. Not that they deserve Bnei Yisrael. They don't deserve it. So they, 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 there is an open account with B'nai Israel, And that's what the Torah says. At the end of Perak Lamed Beis and Shemot, it says, "Beyond Pakti, or Pakti, at B'nai Yisrael. beyond like, when I turn my face to B'nai Israel, I'm going to give, you know, when the, when the time comes to punish them for some reason. For some reason, they're going to have to be punished. I'm going to give them a little extra zets, a little extra zets for the, for the a half, Right? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going <coughs> to, you know, that's a lachli So, mm-hmm. lachli means they're not forgiven. That's what it means. You, Moshe Rabbeinu, said there's a utilitarian problem, right? God's place in the world. Okay, we'll accept that, but that doesn't mean they're forgiven. How can you forgive them? So, forever, that's what the Pasuk says. That's what Rashi explains. I'm telling you, Rashi. Rashi explains the pasuk, "Perak lamed beis shmos, Perek, lamed beis pasuk lamed beis and lamed gimel." Those If you look at the Rashi, that's what Rashi says: that whenever bnei Yisrael are punished, they'll be punished a little bit for the chayta ego, which means losalacti. It means losalacti, and that there's an ongoing. <coughs> that's why Jews are the way they are. Why they like to have this unhappy side to them depressed, you know, like a depressed, unhappy side to that. You have to go see the psychologist talk about life and, and things like that. You know, they're not, they're, they're heavy, they're heavy people, because they've got God's head weighing heavily upon them. They're going to get smashed. So, again, you have try. you have Matan Torah the Cheyta Egor, Matan Torah the Cheyta and then you have the Miraglim, yeah, had the Maraglim where they Yisrael got confused about where the promised land is, right? Somehow they came to the conclusion that the promised land might be in the desert that they were in, right? Because after all, they ate, they drank, they had wonderful Torah leadership of Moshe Rabbeinu, Yehoshua Binut. They were in the best possible position best proposition that they could be in. So they had to move around a little bit, I mean, okay. They didn't do anything else. They took down the tabernacle, they moved it around, they put it back up again. I mean, it, it wasn't as though, it wasn't as though they were working very hard. And besides which, besides which, everything was fine. Their clothes didn't fall into disrepair. And they looked good without going to the gym. And they even ate whatever they wanted and liked it was really quite a remarkable life and, and it's hard to understand with the i mean for us to understand why it what god made it so good in the desert if they were not supposed to be there now the jews this is another theme right the jews managed to complain they managed to complain that's it like also a jewish thing like you give them something to eat and it's whatever you want you eat whatever you want and, and so you say, why don't you have, where's the real thing? You give them the real thing, and they say, well, you don't have to cook it, you have to make it, you have to dray it, you have to do something. Give me the other stuff, right? Like, you, you're never really quite at peace with what you have, and are always wondering about what you don't have. That's the desert. That was what the, de- the desert was not a place where you could live. It was a, but it was a place where the curse to other Mauritians did not exist. The curse did, the other reshone, a curse, one of the curses was Dar right. dar, right? You're gonna bramble, so you're, gonna, you're gonna plant wheat and you're gonna get nothing. You know, something gonna come out that you can't out of the ground that you can't use. Desert, there's no such problem because you can't plant anything. Nothing's gonna come out one way or the other. So so they were excused. So now either they're gonna die in the desert. Or God is going to give them, you know, a nice place to, to live. And that's what, they ha- what happened to them in the desert. And they, they uh, must have confused it with the promised land. I mean, why, if somebody would say, you have a choice. You could either live in the desert, where, which is uh, eternal room service, or you can go to Eretz Yisrael, where you have to fight for every meal. So why would anybody want to go to Eretz Israel on that basis? So this is the tension. These are the tensions that grew up that I think that the Jewish people carry around with them all the time. Like, you, know, you, can, never say, you, can, you can never say something is good. Like it's very hard for Jews to say Eretz Israel is a good thing today. Dinat Good thing. It's very hard to say that. Very hard. People like to say, oh, they're all going to get us. We've got to do something. We've got to get, you know, but... Like to take just a day off from this kind of psychosis and say it's, it's, really, it's really a pleasure after 2,000 years to be able to live in more or less, you know, a, a reasonable way. Uh, okay, all right. You know, you can't say it. You can't say it. And then after all of this comes Korach. Comes Korach. Korach is about Moshe Rabbeinu. Korach is about Moshe Rabbeinu, and that's what we want to look into today. It's very interesting. Not so much Korach, but I'll show you in a minute. The first Pasuk, right? Korach ben Yisar ben Kahat ben Levi. So everybody, of course, you know, it's quite common in the Tanakh. The first time you meet up with a character, very often, he's given his, uh, his ancestry is included. Ben this, Ben that, Ben that. It's a very common. It's a very common thing. So Korach, he had a name. He made Levi Aviram. Now we know about Datan, we know a little bit about Datan Aviram from Mitzrayim I mean they were they were actors in Mitzrayim which we will see. And they were B'nai Eliyav And then this old Ben Pellet, B'nai Ruve. He went, we never heard of. Never heard of On Ben Pellet. Never heard of his name, never heard of it. He, he doesn't appear any place in the, in the Tanakh, except here. So you have this group, right? You have Korach, Datan, Va'aviram, and On Ben Pellet. Now, only On Ben Pellet, somebody is B'nei R'uve, right? On Ben Pelet, B'nei R'uve, why it's B'nei, and it should be singular, right? The name looks like it's uh, it's plural, so we have three people or three groups. We have Korach, the Bavi that seem to be uh, put together like a, They're a group, and on Ben Pelet, he's the third part, the third, the third part. Okay, Vayikach Korach. Rashi says interestingly, Parashat Zoyefen the midrash Rami Now you know that Rashi knew the Tanchuma ba'upeh. He knew the Tanhuma. Tanchu. Tanhuma is the name of a of a non halachic medrash. Medrash is an interpretation. It's a running interpretation. So in the case of, of Korach of the parasha of Korach, Rashi says a lot of what I'm going to tell you is found in the parasha of uh, in the in the interpretations of the Tanchuma. Tanhuma was a name a name of a of a Tana, I guess Rabbi Tanhuma, who was uh, who appeared in this medrash. Now there are, there are two medrashim. There are two medrashim called Tanhuma. There's regular and irregular. Regular Tanhuma is what everybody knows. You know that uh, you buy it in the store. It's called Tanhuma. You have it. There's an irregular which was found which is found and published by Shlomo Buber Shlomo Buber was Martin Buber's grandfather or father, grandfather I think and he was a, a, Shlomo Buber was a collector of books, you know one of those types of people odd people, he collected books, he had money though so he was able to publish books that he edited and and produced so so the, the more liberal kinds of people call it Buber's Tadchuma. But the religious Jews, who, who when they say Buber, all they think about is Martin Buber. So they didn't like that. So they called it Tadchuma Yashan, as though it was older. But uh, I don't think it's really older, but... Uh, that's what, they, that's what, they, uh, that's what they, they call it today. Uh, the Tanchuma, the regular rabbinic Tanhuma, is published by a publishing house called Eshko. Eshko, they're very religious. So they publish it together. First the Tanchuma, then Tanchuma Yashan. Then Tanchuma Yashan. Now Rashi, <coughs> Rashi gets some of his interpretation. We don't know exactly what Rashi was looking at when he quotes whatever he quotes. But some of it comes from the Tanchuma, the Tanchuma Yashan. Like like the first Rashi in the Torah, Omar Rav Yitzchak, it starts, and nobody knew where that comes from. Did you remember that? So everybody thought that Rav Yitzchak must have been Rashi's father. They wanted to start off the commentary by giving his father a little covenant, which sounds like a nice thing to do, until they discovered the Bubba Tanchuma, which has the quote, Omar Rav Yitzchak, and there's no reason to think that it's talking about Rashi's father, right? So, uh, <coughs> so that's the Tanfuma. So Rashi says you <speaking> in the dress of Mr. Rabbi Tanhuma. So we don't have time for that, but you could look at it. Korah. <speaking in Hebrew> so in this case, in this case, the drushes, the, the you know, they all all drushes can be justified somehow. You know, like when when you give an interpretation of, of words. I, I could always justify it, even though that doesn't mean that I think it's a, a kind of primary interpretation. So it says in the pasuk Korach, yeah. The word Tuk has, in Hebrew, Lakach, has a variety of meanings, including to get married. Lakach et echad La'orer al hakuhuna. You know, it's he, vayikach korach? Doesn't mean, it doesn't mean vayikach. There's no, there's no one that he lakach. It says, it doesn't say vayikach korach, it says et datan That Korach took them. But it just says vayikach korach. So it's sort of like an independent statement. Vayikach korach means, he took himself, that's how the is He took himself aside. He, he became a, a leader of the revolt. He was against Bakatkora. No doesn't matter what he was against. Lorreela Ana, Raji and uh, the Tadkuma said, in order to deny, somehow to deny the Kuhuna, the priesthood. Vizel shetir, gave unculus, and this is in accord. This Tanchuma is, is like Unculus that said that Pelag, he separated himself. <laughs> he separated himself in order to hold on to this dispute. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then he brings some, uh, some extra, ex- uh, some sukim in his want, the way Rashi is he brings some other psukim where the word Vayikach is a kind of a reflexive he took himself right, usually you would think that Vayikach is a regular verb he took something but no, it could be he took himself and he brings two other psukim to prove that, we'll leave that for the moment then Rashi goes on and says Vayikach Korach You know, it's, what does Rashi, what does Rashi say? You could provide a object. Something. What's the something according to the Medrash? Rashi Sanhedraot. Rashi Sanhedraot means, you know, the leaders. The leaders of the the nation. And he took them, Bidzvarim. Okay, and then to also two in that way. Okay, ben Yitzhar Ben Kad Ben Levi, a famous drasha. VeLoiskeir Ben Yaakov. but everybody understands that Levi's father was was Yaakov. Yaakov Avinu. So how come Yaakov is not mentioned in this pasuk when you're giving uh, you're giving the uh, genealogy of uh, Korach? Loiskeir Ben Yaakov should be Keshra Chaimim alatzmo. Right, Yaakov asked for mercy. al that his name should not be mentioned on this in the context of this and of this dispute. there's a pasuk Right, that that's what it says in there in this community, the community of Korach. I don't want my name to be mentioned, and so God in the Torah. Did not mention Jacob's. Did not mention Jacob's name. (laughs) Galavat nechad kodi veheichad niz nizacheshemot al korach Sam al aduchan medevrayamim shidemar etc. etc. There, there, Jacob is mentioned. So you have here the interesting idea, (coughs) interesting idea that that no matter what happened, like in real like whatever happened in real and like in the world, the way the Torah tells it is the way God wanted to tell it, right? It, it won't be exactly, because it doesn't mean that the people didn't know that Korach was uh, a descendant of Yaakov. Everybody knew that Korach was a descendant of Yaakov. But when the story is told in the Torah, Yaakov, so to speak, is, I mean, Korach is not a descendant of Yaakov. Does that make sense? In in, in in other words, the Torah is the divine version of history. It's not history, <coughs> and and the divine version of history includes certain things and leaves certain things out. That you know, maybe a historian would not do. I mean, a historian would certainly put in that he's the son of Yaakov. You put in a footnote. They would say, oh, you know, look at this, look at that. So, Look how things develop, but, uh, but the way the Torah was written by God is different, is different. So now we're up to Since we already know, right? We've already known in the, in the first parashiot of Bamidbar, that in the square that makes up the, the way of the parking, of B'nai Israel in the desert, right? Three Shwatim on each side. They uh, ruvein, in the Taymana, They were in the south. Shekane la kafta. Me kahatam sa'yubana. B'chonim temana. Nishtatfu imkorah be makhla kato. B'chla kato ze. Oila rasha. Well, Oila knows. Rashi says, how did that time Iran get involved after all they were not kohanim they were not going to benefit from beating down moshe and aaron about their their positions oh you know if you if you live next door to a russia nothing good will come of it but it also what it means what it means more than that this rashi is that in the story of korach v'adato Datan Vaviram don't stand for anything. They just get along. They were like, you know, they were having a good time. Korach was, was whipping up uh, uh, support and uh, giving out free beer or something. And so Datan Vaviram went in with it. Even though they get a byline, Datan Vaviram, they didn't have an idea. They just are the kind of people who like to get into a good fight, like to put, push you around, like to do things. Uh, that are that are unacceptable. That's So why was it that Korach did it? Right? Uh, Rashi says that Kahat that Korah had a gripe against Moshe. That uh, the the next Nasi that was appointed was not from the children of Kahat which would have made Korah uh, the Nasi. But was another another one of the family, a family of Levi. And Rashi here stresses, Rashi, you see the last words that I just read, Al pi Even though it wasn't, it was a political appointment. It was. Inspired by God, God said to him, "Do this, do this." Oma Korach, you all know this story. So now, uh, if we skip a couple of lines, you see those words, "Masa." It's a um, how would I say it? Two, four, six, seven lines on the bottom. Two-thirds of the line. Ma'asa. What did Korach do? I mean, okay, Korach doesn't like it. I mean, he has this gripe against Moshe Rabbeinu. But what's he going to do? How's he going to get a revolt started? So it's very interesting what Rashi says. Rashi says, Ma'asa. He brought 250 heads of sanhedrin or little courts most of them came from Ruvain, who were his neighbors he proves that they were the important people listen rashi comes from the town which is also found in the gemara and sanhedrin all Chazal all said that Chazal was stuck they said what could he have possibly done that would have made the grade with B'nai Yisrael against Moshe Rabbeinu after all nobody cares only Korach cared that he was not appointed why would anybody else in B'nai Yisrael care about that so what was it that he did he uh, Korach that created a revolt I mean, how did he create a revolt? Because he, he wants to be he wants to be uh, like get a job. I mean, this is stuff that happens every day. People want a job. They're happy. They're unhappy. <coughs> why was it? Why was it? Pray that that uh, uh, that Korach was able to succeed. So Chazal come up with the following interesting idea. He says, "Create Aida. He'll be shantali dolche he gave everybody. He gave everybody a cloak that was made up of chalvet, of the royal purple, right cloth, dyed chalvet. And he said, and he said, "Bob, Abdul Moshe." They came and they stood before Moshe Rabbeinu Amrulov. Taliche kulo shel now they are in the arena of Moshe Rabbeinu. They're asking the halachic question. Who's going to know the answer to the halachic question? Moshe Rabbeinu. So how could they possibly turn this into victory? How? So they said, they said this talus, which is entirely made up of ro- of the dye, royal purple dye, do I have to put tzitzes on it? Or oh, don't have to put tzitzis. Everybody knows that tzitzis have one strand, which is made of royal purple. So there was a kind of a, a statement here, right? A statement here. It should never understand that create more. It'll be shunned. They came and they stood before Moshe Ruloh. They came and they stood before Moshe Ruloh. So Moshe Rabbeinu looked at them like they're crazy. Right, Moshe Rabbeinu, he had this computer program. You know, he pressed the the button. Question was, what do you do? Uh, do you have to put on uh, tzitzis on a tzitzis? Of course you have to. Uh, everybody knows that. Uh, you ask a kid and uh, who studied, he'll hold tzitzit and will tell you. Of course you need. Of course you need uh, tzitzis. What what kind of question was that? So the, he goes. and says, A tzitzit chayevet. It killed sakekalabs and they're all laughing. But what well how could they laugh? Amruba um, he he said, Efshata Lichel Min Achair Thailit Putra, so shit hulat khilit, lotiftor that's ma. So he said, What do you mean? If I have a regular cloak that's any other color, I just put one strand, I hang one string of tchelet in that cloak which is made up of white stuff right so then that's fine right patur i don't need any more tzitzes so if i have a whole talis that's uh, <laughs> a whole talis that's made out of tchelet. what is this does this make any sense to anybody so you know that in the sitter in the siddur that we use, we from in the morning, at the end of what's called, uh, at the end of the brachot, the section of brachot before is in Ra, there's a a brighter, of Yudgil uh, midot of Rabbi Ishmael. Right, so there's a list of these midot, these kinds of uh, logical. Uh, inferences that we use to understand the halakha now or to create halakha. The Rambam mentioned several times that the Anshe Knesset the were able to use these midot in order to create halakhot I don't know what that means. I don't know what the Rambam was thinking, because everybody who looks at it will understand that none of these midot make any sense. In other words, the Yud midot. 12 don't make any sense at all. I mean, how can you, how you make it like a Zerashavah? Zerashavah I means you have a word in this Pasuk, and the same word or similar word appears in another Pasuk, so you say, well, there must be a relationship between these two Pesukim. and this is the relationship. Nobody could say a thing like that. It's only if you have a tradition that tells you what the result is that you could say, okay. Uh, you know, uh, we could fit it into the context of Zera Shabbat. But the Zerah Shabbat I don't understand how it could produce a halacha. That I don't understand. However, there is one midah that is logical. One midah that has that is founded on logic. And that's what we call kal v'chomer. Kal v'chomer. Kal v'chomer means if it's true for kal, well, like a simple thing, so if you have 10X, if it's true for X, then it's certainly true for 10X, even though 10X is not mentioned in the, in the Torah. So what, the, what, the, uh, what did the Korach say? What did Korach say? Korach said, if you have X, like a regular, a regular cloak, you have, you need one thread, one thread of blue to fulfill the mitzvah. But if you have 10X, so uh, why do you need the one thread of blue? So that's called the Kalvachomer. and Chazal, I think, were very clever in this at this point because they said what they said was <coughs> that the kal will do it. They, they, that's what Korach said. Korach said, but it's a kal But What's a kal What is a kal v'chomer? is logic. What, what is it about logic that differentiates it from everything else? Well, everything else, the truth of the matter is determined by the tradition of interpretation. That is, was when everything else, any other halacha, what do you want to say? Oh, Rabbi, so-and-so, he told me this, So my teacher told me this, So my teacher learned it from his teacher. That's the source of halachic information. The only opening is kal v'homer. I could say, I could say, is oh, that's that's logical, that's reasonable. So here, what happened? What happened? They went to Moshe Rabbeinu and they asked Moshe Rabbeinu a question. Moshe Rabbeinu gave the answer, but then they said, they said, look, Kalvachomer, you, Moshe Rabbeinu, are not uniquely responsible for. We all can be logical. We could all know what a kalvah is. And therefore, we say that we would paskin against Moshe Rabbeinu. We paskin against Moshe Rabbeinu based on the kalvah and say that doesn't need tzitzis. And that was the basis, according to Rashi, of the revolt of, of, uh, <coughs> of Korach. Okay. So then it goes on. It goes on. It says, uh, this is the end in Russia, But in, in, uh, in the Medrash, the Medrash is another case that's brought, which is very similar, and that is that if you have a room, the is the you put a mezuzah on the door. What if you have a room that's full of sefer Torah? It's full of sefer Torah, I don't, I don't know how many that is, but you have to also put a mezuzah on that door, because in every Sefer Torah, you have the parasha of the mezuzah. It's in every Sefer Torah. So Moshe Rabbeinu said, of course you have to put on a mezuzah. The Neh Israel said, or Korach said, well, you know, if, if uh, an empty room, you could take care of by just having that one parasha on the door of your room full of Seferi Torah, you would need, so it's, again, it's a Kalvachomer. It's a kind of a Kalvachomer. And that's what, that's what Rashi says. That was the way that Rashi beat Moshe Rabbeinu. In other words, what did, Rashi, what, what did Karach want to say about Moshe Rabbeinu? The man is sinai. Right? He doesn't really know what's going on. And so he appointed, he appointed whoever he appointed, but, you know, it was arbitrary. It was insignificant. It was incorrect. We would like to have a different tradition of appointment. And I can prove to you that Moshe Rabbeinu has lost it a little. Because look, will ask him a simple question, and he's going to give me the wrong answer. So if Moshe Rabbeinu is giving me the wrong answer about something in the Torah, so how could I trust Moshe Rabbeinu about politics? <coughs> politics, you know, I mean, if Moshe Rabbeinu was right on with the Torah, so then I agree, I'd have to accept his, his word for the political truth. So this leaves, I just want to say, I see that, 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 I've done too much talking. So, there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin. What we have left is to figure out about On Ben Pellet. On Ben Pellet is the most interesting person that is mentioned in the, uh, in the uh, Korach Uprising. And he's the one that you have to really think about because, in fact, the one thing you know about On Ben Pellet is that here is his last mention. This is his tombstone right here. He just disappears. He goes up in smoke. And look at the Gemara. The Gemara says, "Om ben Pelet." You see, Om ben Pelet, Omar Rav. I'm going to go through it more quickly, so you have to you have to follow. Omar Rav, Om, Om ben Pelet. He starts. I don't want to get into the this business about men and women and husbands and wives, but this is a very famous, a very famous passage, right? His wife saved him. Now, how did his wife save him? Amrale, she said to him. He says, where, where do you want to go and be part of this revolution with Korah? He says, "Imar Raba, if one of them, you're talking about a conflict between Korach and Moshe Rabbeinu. Imar Raba, if one of them is like wins at Talmidah, you're you're like a nothing. You're just like a, you'll be an around.. and if the other guy wins." At Talmidah, then you're also not anything important. Omalah. So he, that Pelet, says, "My what could I do? Havaib He says, "I was in the formation, right? Remember the groundwork, the guys who planned the revolution. Ba'adayu I swore my allegiance to Korah. I mean, what could I do? I can't just walk away. Uh, Omraleh. So she said to him, Yadana, the Kula Kinishto Kadis Ninu, I know that the entire assembly is holy. Diktiv Kikola Ida Kulakodoshim. After all it says, Kola Ida Kulakuloshim, that's what says in the Pasak, Omrale, she said to him, she said to him, listen to this, Two, sit down. I'm going to save you from going out and being part of this that's going to probably lose she gave him uh, liquor to drink some alcoholic beverage and he was sated right? and she put him down to sleep in bed this seems to be like a thing that women do from time to time <coughs> then <coughs> she sat down at the shower, at the gate of her house and she undid her hair right which was you know married the women when they went out in the street they would braid their hair, as the Gemara says, and they put it in some kind of like a basket that they wore. This has like evolved in our day to like uh, covering your hair. But th- th- there was this idea, there was this idea that uh, that you, when you went out in public, you gathered your hair together and you put it under some kind of a basket, a restraining thing. Right? And yes. you never... Undid your hair except before your husband. So she, Mrs. Ong Ben Pellet, sat at the gate to her house, at the door, the door to her house, and undid her hair in the way of prostitutes. Called the Atta Khazia Hadar. And then everybody who came, they came to call Ong. Ong was late for the big meeting. Om Ben Pellet he wasn't uh, participating with Korach, so they all came, but since the Falay, since we're all talking about a sacred community, when they saw <coughs> when they saw um, Mrs. On Ben Pellet acting like a prostitute in front of the house, they went away. They didn't look for, they didn't come to look for the Pelet. So what happened at the end they were all swallowed up in the punishment and Omben Pellet was saved and Omben Pellet was saved so this is kind of a remarkable story i just wanted to i want to, to mention this is a remarkable story it's true that Omben Pellet is mentioned here in the first pasuk and is not mentioned again but the point is the point is, I think of the story, is not so much a story about Ben Pellet and his wife. And his wife. Because in certain areas, there really in the Torah is no distinction between men and women, other areas there is. But in terms of leadership, in terms of the ability to take something in hand and do something that is necessary, that, that was not a problem in the Torah. That was not a problem in the Torah's, the way the Torah looked upon upon women. So that if Ya'el, took a tent peg and smashed it into Sisera's head, that seemed to be perfectly reasonable. I mean, no one, no, there's nothing in the Torah that says, "Wow, you know, she must have been going to the gym for years." It was like perfectly reasonable. It was a thing that could happen. It wasn't something that was noteworthy. I'm not saying that uh, there was equality between men and women. It certainly (laughs) certainly there wasn't right women were the wives of or the concubines of or the shvakot of but when it came to leadership roles, the leadership role that was not a problem I think it's true in the ancient world in general you have here and there you have queens who are not consorts but they were real the real McCoy and uh, it's it's not a it's not a problem Uh, what uh, what did Queen Elizabeth say just yesterday or two days ago, she says, I'm still working. <laughs> no, I mean, she's 90. And she's yeah. like, she keeps doing it, you know, like senseless acts for 50 years, 60. You know, she just shows up, shows up with a new hat, blesses the people, and goes back into the car. I mean, it's really something. So, so, so it's, not a problem, it's not a problem for the Torah, for the Tanakh, to have a woman who's extraordinary, right? That's not, that's not a problem. So here, I say, let's ignore that. Ignore the fact that it was his wife. Because it could be. That's not something that the Torah is, or that Chazal, find remarkable. There were always remarkable women, always. And they were always given their due as far as we know. I mean, there was be remarkable women who are not giving their dues, so we don't know about them. But the ones we know about, we know about women who are, who are learned, we know who are, who are effective, we know about women who, who took, uh, who played serious roles. We just, they just did not have a social consciousness that you say people at the bottom of the ladder had to be kind of propped up, moved up or run. That we don't have so much of. We don't have so much of that, but maybe we do you know, that's a question of Stokka and, <coughs> and Shemitah and Yovel, I mean the interesting ideas that the, Torah, that the Torah has. But the idea the idea that, that in some way On ben Pellet made a choice to leave the revolution that is something that's not in the Torah. That's not in the Torah. The Torah Everybody involved with the revolution is killed one way or the other. Right? Uh, they're either killed, they're just swallowed up, or they have this business with the, where you have to go through the parasha. The censors, everybody had a censor, and then they brought the, uh, uh, a ketoret, an incense sacrifice, and that was all rejected by heaven. It was all rejected by heaven, and, and uh, I don't know how it, was approved of. <coughs> but in the midst of all this, there's one person, there's one person who reconsiders, there's one person who reconsiders, who understood, even if he understood it in a less than perfect, the almost defective manner, but there was one person who understood that Korach was the wrong team, that he, he should, he should uh, respond. And he couldn't have done it without his wife, of course. He could not have done it. He had the mistaken idea that he was bound to an oath that he had made to, uh, to Korach. But I think it was important. I think it was important that Chazal could discover within the merit of Korach that even people who joined up, at least in the out- outset, were able to reconsider and back down and say, no, this is not for us. We don't want to. And that's On Ben Pellet. But he didn't do it out of his free will. In a way, it, he had nothing to say about it. He was thinking about it, but he didn't act. Uh, I don't think so that. I mean, the, you could you could say that, but you could say you could say here is a, a story about somebody who was involved that became uninvolved. I, I, I mean, what what does it mean to say that his wife did it mean he had no he would have then when he sobered up he would have run out and gone out and rejoined them. But I don't think he did that. At least we don't have evidence that he that he rejoined the Korachites. He stayed away from it. So I say that conceptually. Conceptually, for us, it's important to know that maybe maybe him and maybe others who thought that the Korach had a point, but was able, were able to recover. They were able to recover their thinking on the matter, and that's represented by Onben Pellet. we say shirk Korach, because he had so much money to buy all of those vests because it was very expensive to buy the Pellet? Yeah, maybe. by <laughs> No. The sons were good guys. What? The sons were good guys. The sons of Korah. They yeah, yeah. they can. Yeah, yeah. They were Kohanim. The they were Leviim. They were Leviim. Nothing is perfect, but imperfection is sometimes an advantage. Okay. Have a good Shabbos.